0: Chapter 22 of the Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 We held our way up the river, fighting many a battle with the current. Round the points, the stream ran strong, and our canoe was a big, lumbering affair, hollowed out of a single cottonwood tree by Jacques years before on the Fraser River and ill-adapted to the ice, which was our most dangerous enemy. Many a near shave we had of being crushed under its heavy flows as we coasted along beneath their impending masses. When the river breaks up, portions of it stronger than the rest remain still frozen. At the back of these floating ice jams, the river rises rapidly behind the barrier thus flung across it. Then the pack gives way, and the pent-up waters rapidly lower. But along the shore, on either side, the huge blocks of ice lie stranded, heaped one upon another, and the water, still falling, brushes off from beneath the projecting pieces, leaving a steep wall of ice, sometimes 20 or 30 feet, brightly rising above the water. Along these impending masses, we had to steer our canoe, and hazardous work it was, for every now and again some huge fragment, many tons in weight, would slide from its high resting place and crash into the river with a roar of thunder, driving billows before it halfway across the wide river and making our hearts jump half as much again. At one point, where the river ran with unusual velocity, we battled long beneath a very high ice wall. Once or twice the current carried us against its sides. We dared not touch it with our poles, for it hung by a thread... "'so far did its summit project over our heads. "'Gently we stole our way up from beneath it "'and were still within 30 yards of it "'when the great boulder, looming high, "'crashed into the river. "'On the fourth day we got clear of the shore ice "'and drew near the main range of the mountains. "'But there was one important question "'which experience soon told me "'there was no cause for anxiety about. "'It was the question of food.' Game was abundant. The lower hills were thickly stocked with blue grouse, a noble bird, weighing between three and four pounds. The bays of the river held beaver, swimming through the driftwood, and ere we had reached the mountain gate, a moose had fallen to my trusty smoothbore in one of the grassy glens between the river and the snowy range. It was literally a hunter's paradise. This was the worst time of the year, except for beavers, But necessity knows no game law, and the wilderness at all times must feed its wanderers. We usually camped a couple of hours before sundown, for in this northern land the daylight was more than long enough to stiffen our shoulders and make our arms ache from pole or paddle. Then came the time to stretch one's legs over these great grassy uplands, so steep, yet so free of rock, so full of projecting point and lofty promontory, beneath which the river lay in long silvery reaches, while around on every side the mountains in masses of rock and snow lay like giant sentinels, guarding the great road which nature had hewn through their midst. At the entrance to the main range, the valley of the river is about two miles wide. The river itself preserves its general width of 250 to 300 yards with singular uniformity. The reaches are from one to three miles in length, The banks are dry, the lower beaches are level and well-wooded, and the current becomes deeper and less rapid. On the 8th of May, we reached, early in the morning, the entrance to the main range. A short rapid marks it, a rapid easy to run at all stages of water, and up which we towed our canoe, carrying the more perishable articles to save them from the spray, a precaution which was, however, not necessary as no water was shipped. We were now in the mountains. From the low terrace along the shore they rose in stupendous masses. Their lower ridges clothed in forests of huge spruce, poplar, and birch. Their middle heights covered in dense thickets of spruce alone. Their summits cut into a thousand varied peaks bare of all vegetation, but bearing aloft into the sunshine 8,000 feet above us the glittering crowns of snow, which, when evening stilled the breezes, Shone, reflected in the quiet waters vast and motionless wonderful things to look at are these white peaks perched up so high above our world they belong to us yet they are not of us the eagle links them to the earth the cloud carries to them the message of the sky the ocean sends them her tempest the air rolls her thunders beneath their brows and launches her lightnings from their sides The sun sends them his first greeting and leaves them his latest kiss. Yet motionless they keep their crowns of snow, their glacier crests of jewels, and dwell among the stars, heedless of time or tempest. For two days we journeyed through this vast valley, along a wide, beautiful river, tranquil as a lake, and bearing on its bosom, at intervals, small aisles of green forest. Now and again a beaver rippled the placid surface, Or a bear appeared on a rocky point for a moment, looked at the strange, lonely craft, stretched out his long snout to sniff the gale, and then vanished into the forest shore. For the rest, all was stillness. Forest, isle, river, and mountain all seemed to sleep in unending loneliness, and our poles, grating against the rocky shore or a shot at some quick-diving beaver, alone broke the silence while the echo, dying away in the vast mountain canyons, made the relapsing silence seem more intense. Thus we journeyed on. On the evening of the 8th of May, we emerged from the pass and saw beyond the extremity of a long reach of river, a mountain range running north and south distant about 30 miles from us. To the right and left, the Rocky Mountains opened out, leaving the river to follow its course through a long forest valley of considerable width we had passed the rocky mountains and the range before us was the central mountain system of north british columbia it was a very beautiful evening the tops of the birch trees were already showing their light green leaves amidst the dark foliage of the spruce and firs along the shore where we landed the tracks of a very large grizzly bear were imprinted freshly in the sand i put a couple of bullets into my gun and started up the river with sir fola for a companion I had got about a mile from the camp when, a few hundred yards ahead, a large dark animal emerged from the forest and made his way through some lower brushwood toward the river. Could it be the grizzly? I lay down on the sandbank and pulled a dog down beside me. The large black animal walked out on the sandbar two or three hundred yards above me. He proved to be a moose on his way to swim the river to the south shore. I lay still until he had got so far on his way that return to the forest would have been impracticable. Then I sprang to my feet and ran toward him. What a spring he gave across the sand and down into the water. Making an allowance for the force of the current, I ran toward the shore. It was a couple of hundred yards from me, and when I gained it, the moose was already three parts across the river, almost abreast where I stood, swimming for his very life, with his huge, unshapen head thrust out along the surface, the ears thrown forward, while the large ripples rolled from before his chest as he clove his way through the water. It was a long shot for a rifle, doubly so for a smoothbore, but old experience in many lands where the smoothbore holds its own despite all other weapons had told me that when you do get a gun to throw a bullet well— You may rely upon it for distances supposed to be far beyond the possibilities of such a weapon. So, in a tenth of the time it has taken me to say all this, I gave the moose the right barrel, aiming just about his long ears. There was a single plunge in the water, the giant head went down, and all was quiet. And now to secure the quarry. Away downstream he floated, showing only one small black speck above the surface. He was near the far side, too. Running downshore, I came within calling distance of the camp, from which the smoke of Calder's fire was already curling above the treetops. Out came Calder, Jack, and A. blank. Of course it was a grizzly, and all the broken flint guns of the party were suddenly called into requisition. If it had been a grizzly, and that I had been retiring before him in skirmishing order, gods, what a support I was falling back upon. A. Blank's gun is already familiar to the reader. Calder's beaver gun went off about one shot in three, and Jacques possessed a weapon that had been discarded by an Indian and Jacques had resuscitated it out of the store of all trades, which he possessed an inkling of, the most extraordinary I had ever seen. Jacques always spoke of it in the feminine gender. She was a good gun, except that a trifle too much of the powder came out the wrong way. He would back her to shoot plumb if she would only go off after a reasonable lapse of time. But it was tiring him to keep her to the shoulder for a couple of minutes after he'd pulled her trigger and then have her go off when he was thinking of pulling the gun coat over her again. When she was put away in the canoe, it was always a matter of some moment to place her so that in the event of any sudden explosion of her pent-up wrath, she might discharge herself harmlessly along the river and on this account she generally lay like a stern chaser projecting from behind Jock and endangering only his paddle. All these maimed and mutilated weapons were now brought forth, and such a loading and priming and hammering began that, had it really been a grizzly, he must have been utterly scared out of all semblance of attack. Calder now mastered the position of affairs, and like an arrow, He and Jacques were into the canoe and out after the dead moose. They soon overhauled him and, slipping a line over the young antlers, towed him to the shore. We were unable to lift him altogether out of the water, so we cut him up as he lay, stranded like a whale. Directly opposite, a huge cone mountain rose up some eight or 9,000 feet above us and just ere the evening fell over this scene, his topmost peak, glowing white in the sunlight, became mirrored in most faithful semblance in the clear, quiet river, while the life stream of the moose flowed out over the tranquil surface, dyeing the nearer waters into brilliant crimson. If some painter, in the exuberance of his genius, had put upon a canvas such a strange contrast of colors, people would have said, It is not true to nature. But nature has many truths, And it takes many a long day, and not a few years' toil, to catch a tenth of them. And my dear friend with the eyeglass, you who know all about nature in a gallery and with a catalog, you may take my word for it. And now, ere quitting, probably forever, this grand Peace River Pass, this immense valley which receives in its bosom so many other valleys, into whose depths I only caught a moment's glimpse as we floated by their outlets, let me say one other word about it. Since I left the wild northland, it has been my lot to visit the chief points of interest in Oregon, California, the Vale of Shasta, and the Yosemite. Shasta is a loftier mountain than any that frowned on the Peace River Pass. Yosemite can boast its half-dozen waterfalls trickling down their thousand feet of rock, But for wild beauty, for the singular spectacle of a great river flowing tranquilly through a stupendous mountain range, these mountains presenting at every reach a hundred varied aspects, not the dizzy glory of Shasta nor the rampart precipices of Yosemite can vie with that lonely gorge far away on the great Anchaga. On the 9th of May we reach the forks of the river, where the two main streams of the Parsnip and the Findlay come together. A couple of miles from their junction, a second small rapid occurs, but like the first one, it can be run without difficulty. Around the point of junction, the country is low and marshy, and when we turned into the Findlay, it was easy to perceive from the color of the water that the river was rising rapidly. Some miles above the forks, there is a solitary hut on the south bank of the river. In this hut dwelt Pete Toy a miner of vast repute in the northern mining country. Some ten years ago, Pete had paddled his canoe into these lonely waters. As he went, he prospected the various bars. Suddenly, he struck one of surpassing richness. It yielded one dollar to the bucket, or one hundred dollars a day to a man's work. Pete was astonished. He laid up his canoe, built his hut, and claimed the bar as his property. For a long time, it yielded a steady return, but even gold has a limit. The bar became exhausted. Where had all this gold come from? Uh-huh, that is the question. Even today, though the bank has been washed year after year, it is still rich in color, but the pay dirt lies too far from the water's edge, hence the labor is too great. Well... Pete, the Cornish miner, built his hut and took out his gold, but that did not satisfy him. What miner ever yet was satisfied? Pete went in for 50 things. He traded with the Indians. He trapped. He took an Indian wife. Yet through all, he maintained a character for being as honest and as straightforward a miner as ever found a color from Mexico to caribou. My little friend Jacques expected to meet his old brother miner Pete at his hut. But as we came within five miles of it, a beaver swam across the river. We all fired at him, and when the smoke had vanished, I heard Jacques mutter, Pete's not hereabouts, or that fellow wouldn't be there. He was right, for when we reached the hut an hour later, we found a notice on the door saying that Pete and two friends had departed for the Aminica just six days earlier, being totally out of all food and having only their guns to rely on. Now, this fact of Pete's absence rendered necessary new arrangements, for here the two courses I have already alluded to lay open, either to turn south along the parsnip or north and west along the Findlay and Aminica. The current of the parsnip is regular. That of the Aminica is wild and rapid. But the parsnip was already rising, and at its spring level it is almost an impossibility to ascend it owing to its great depth, while the Ominica, though difficult and dangerous in its canyons, is nevertheless possible of ascent, even in the worst stage of water. I talked the matter over with Jacques as we sat camped on the gold bar opposite Pete Toy's house. Fortunately, we had ample supplies of meat, but some luxuries, such as tea and sugar, were getting dangerously low and flour was almost exhausted. I decided on trying the Aminica. About noon on the 10th of May, we set out for the Aminica with high hopes of finding the river still low enough to allow us to ascend it. Ten miles above Toy's hut, the Aminica enters the Peace River from the southwest. We reached its mouth on the morning of the 11th and found it high and rapid. There was hard work in store for us, and the difficulties of passing the Great Canyon loomed ominously big. We pushed on, however, and that night reached a spot where the river issued from a large gap in a high wall of dark rock. Above, on the summit of this rock, pine trees projected over the river. We were at the door of the Aminica Canyon. The warm weather of last week had done its work, and the water rushed from the gate of the canyon in a wild and impetuous torrent. We looked a moment at the grim gate, which we had to storm on the morrow, and then put into the north shore where, under broad and lofty pines, we made our beds for the night. The Findlay River, as it is called after the fur trader who first ascended it, has many large tributaries. It is something like a huge right hand spread out over the country, of which the middle finger would be the main river, and the thumb the Ominica. There is the North Fork, which closely hugs the main Rocky Mountain Range. There is the Findlay itself, a magnificent river flowing from a vast labyrinth of mountains and being unchanged in size or apparent volume 120 miles above the forks we had lately left. At that distance, it issues from a canyon similar to that at whose mouth we were now camped. And there is the second South Fork, a river something smaller than the Amenica, from whose mouth it is distant about a 100 miles. Of these rivers, nothing is known. These few items are the result of chance information picked up from the solitary miner who penetrated to this canyon's mouth, and from the reports which a wandering band of sickenies gave of the vast unknown interior of the region of the Stikine. And yet, it is all British territory. It abounds with game. Its scenery is as wild as mountain peaks and gloomy canyon can make it. It is free from fever or malaria. In it, Nature has locked up some of her richest treasures, treasures which are open to any strong, stout heart who will venture to grasp them. I know not how it is, but sometimes it seems to me that this England of ours is living on a bygone reputation. The sinew is there without the soul. It is so easy to be a traveler in an easy chair, to lay out a map and run one's finger over it and say, This river is the true source of the hunky Dorym, and that lake finds its outlet in the rumdfuzel, and it is equally easy, particularly after our comfortable dinner at the club, to stroll over to the meeting of the Society for Preservation of Sticklebacks and Tahitian Seas, and to prove to the fashionable audience there assembled that a stickleback was the original progenitor of the human race. Our modern Briton can be a traveler without any trouble. He is a member of the club, and on the strength of his membership, he can criticize that fellow Burton or that queer fish Palgrave and prove to you how, if that poor devil Hayward had tried the Chitral Pass instead of the Palmyr Step, he would never have come to grief, you know. I know one or two excellent idiots who fancy they are wits because they belong to the Garrick. It is quite as easy to be a traveler by simply belonging to a traveler's club. Now all this would be a very harmless pastime if something more serious did not lie behind it. Just as the mania to dress ourselves in uniform and carry a rifle through the streets would also be a very harmless, if a very useless, pastime if a graver question did not again lie hidden beneath our noble volunteers. But the club traveler and the club soldier are not content with the role of lounging mediocrity for which nature destined them. They must needs stand between the spirit of England's better genius and England's real toilers of the wilds. They must supervise and criticize and catch a and generally play the part of fuzz buzz to the detriment of everything which redounds to the true spirit of England's honor in the fair field of travel and discovery. Let there be no mistake in this matter. To those veterans who still stand above the waves of time, living monuments of England's heroism in Arctic ice or Africa's sun, we owe all honor and love and veneration. They are the old soldiers of an army passed from the world, and when time sums up the record of their service here below, it will be but to hand up the roll to the tribunal of the future, but it is of the younger race of whom we would speak, that race who buy with gold the right to determine what England shall do and shall not do in the wide field of geographical research, who are responsible for the wretched exploratory failures of the past few years, who have allowed the palm of discovery and enterprise to pass away to other nations or to alien sons. But if we were to say all we think about this matter we might only tire the reader and stop until doomsday at the mouth of this black canyon of the Almenica. End of chapter 22